0: Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to catherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading.
2: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: Hello, I'm Catherine May and welcome to The Wintering Sessions, the podcast that sets out to learn from the times when life is frozen. This week, I'm talking to writer, coach, and interfaith minister, Jackie Holder, whose most recent project is Writing with Fabulous Trees, a map that encourages us to find creative inspiration in green spaces. Here, we talk about all the good things in life, libraries, trees, and sea-swimming mothers to have you here. I'm really excited to talk to you because yeah, I've followed you for years on Instagram. I'm not even sure for how long. And you're always kind of out in the world weaving magic. Um, and yeah, I suppose I wanted to start by talking about what it is you do because you do this really big cluster of things as well as being
3: a writer. Oh, I love that! I'm so delighted to be here, Catherine. <laughs> and I have to tell you something that I really want to be honest about. Yeah, I had no idea you followed me on Instagram for years. I did,
0: yeah. And I, do you know what? I was trying to work out, and I'm not sure if I'll get to the bottom of this because I think I think I've come across you through
3: Barbara Corellis. Would that be right? I, it might be. By the way, or by the way, but do you know you mm. just have no idea of who's following you sometimes on social media no, know. and sometimes you don't know the impact that you're having on people yeah, yeah, yeah. or people have you know it's just really amazing the kind of energy that is generated I absolutely love my Instagram followers I, 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 honestly mm. they feel like my tribe I, I, I can get <laughs> heartwarmed by just going onto my Insta for, you know, five minutes, just seeing comments people are making, seeing which posts really resonate with people. It could just bring a smile to my face. So I'm really heartened today that I wouldn't have known that necessarily. Um, So thank you for sharing that. It's funny,
0: isn't it? But I, I always think that, I mean, I'm quite quiet on Instagram in that I don't tend to, you know, I tend to click like on posts, but I don't ever think of anything to say. And I'm always amazed by how chatty people are, like in a in a really wonderful way. <laughs> like, you know, people reach out to you and talk to you on there. And it's all these beautiful kind of fleeting connections that get made. And I, I just think there's something really wonderful about that place. You know, like we, we talk so often about how awful social media is, but I think we should really stop and be appreciative sometimes of all the wonderful things that we get to.
3: I totally agree with you because... Um, I tell people, and they do start laughing in my face, that I'm an introvert who learned to be an extrovert. So (laughs) people look at me and they think, oh, she's an absolute extrovert. But I'm not. I am an introvert. I grew up with six siblings. I was one of six. You know, if you didn't have a voice in our family, you could go down pretty quickly. Yeah. (laughs) You could be taken down any minute. You've got to fight for your space You've in that family. Got to fight for your space, and I was a middle <laughs> child. I was the first of my mm. siblings that was born in the UK. Mum and Dad came over from Barbados in nineteen sixty-one and nineteen sixty, respectfully. And two older brothers. I was the oldest girl. Um, growing up in the art, uh, the family that I grew up in, and so yeah, you had to, you had to assert yourself. You had mm. to find your ground to stand on. Um, so yeah, I learned yeah. to flex between the two, both in my personal life and in my working life, because I'm very mm. much the same in my working life. I can really step in front of a group and um, I can be very chatty. I can be very engaging. But as soon as I press that stop button, I have to either yeah. go out to the garden. I have to head into my journal. I have to go out for a walk. I have to not talk to anybody.
0: You have to replenish. It's, I'm going way off topic already, but uh, what the hell? I think you're. I think this is going to be the last in the series, so I think we can be meandering. I think this, that's the invitation today. Yeah. But um, like, as a like, when I learned that I was autistic, I realised at the same time that I'm an introvert. But I mean, like you, I, I kind of trained myself in being an extrovert, and I would have told you at that time if you'd have asked me. I mean, you know, I'm only talking about five or six years ago that I'm really social and I really love, you know, getting out there and talking to people. And for me, I've had this, you know, battle with myself to kind of work out what it is I like to do because I was so deeply masked that I was masked even to myself. You know, I'd learned to pass and that passing has always been a real privilege that I've been able to enact but it's also been quite harmful to me because it's left me really exhausted. And I've kind of come full circle now because for a long time I retreated and and became like very isolated, wanted to be very isolated. And now I'm trying to, I suppose a little bit like you, trying to get the right balance between still really liking people actually, (laughs) Um, but not, letting those relationships totally drain me and take me to the point where I'm making myself sick from them.
3: So I I, I really appreciate what you've just said, because what I realised as I was listening to you was that I found the balance quite a long time ago. In 1999, Mm. I started running. I mean, I'm talking about running from my front door down to Brockwell Park in South London. I only lived about not even 10 minutes away from Brockwell Park. And then Mm. one day I miraculously made it around the park, much to the annoyance of an elderly woman who was walking (laughs) up the hill as I was making that last climb. And she literally sidled up beside me as I was huffing, puffing, you know, that sort of splattering sort of running that you do when you're not fit at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been there. <laughs> and she says to me, can't you go any faster? And I'm like, you did not just say that to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, I got a fire in my belly. I made it up the hill. I made it to the gate where I started. And that was the beginning of of my wanderings, I call them, people who know me call them, I became a regular runner. So I'd run every morning from my house around Brockwell Park. And then I used to head up to this tree that was at the top of the hill. It was this huge, sprawling, evergreen oak. And I would Mm. literally land under that tree every morning At the time, I think I just started training as an interfaith minister. So we were taught Mm. something called body prayers. So I would literally use that as an opportunity to practice. It was called an earth body prayer. And I would do this body prayer under the tree. It was like the tree was my cathedral. The tree was my church. The tree was my sanctuary. And that became my morning ritual. Honestly, Mm. it was like the holiest of times during a very difficult time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and trees are so significant to you, aren't they? I mean, I, I want to talk a little bit about
3: your, what do you call it? A, a map, a pamphlet that you've published recently. Yeah, it's called Writing with Fabulous Trees. My writing, my writing map that I did mm. with the wonderful Sean from um, Writing Maps. He commissioned me to co-write with him the um, Writing with Fabulous Trees writing maps. And what we did, we put together 12 journal prompts that are connected to trees, parks and green spaces. It's mm. illustrated. And the idea behind it is to, I really wanted to help people make that connection with nature meaningful and purposeful and fun mm. so that we could find a way to engage with our own narrative around nature.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes people need
3: almost like a, a kind of help
0: with structuring a fascination with nature, you know, like that's how you can get started because there's that early intimidation, I think, when you want to do something, you want to forge a new relationship, you want to start a new practice, maybe. And, so, and you need like a little guide to say, OK, well, look, here's some ways, here's some permission, here's some ways in. That's what I thought was really beautiful about the way you'd framed it. I could just see loads of doors opening from
3: it. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? We're we're now in a culture where everything is almost like you need to be an expert or really good at something really, really quickly.
1: Mm.
3: And I think that often people don't know how to begin that conversation with nature. So when I ended up under that tree, what I started to realise quite quickly was what my roots were, where in my life was I grounded. What did I need to plant in my life so that I could remain grounded? It was almost like I could take the metaphors from the tree and I could translate those into journal prompts for myself in my journal. And because mm-hmm. I have been a very, um, I've been journaling for years That was an easy kind of segue for me into my journal. So sometimes I would sit on the upraised roots of the tree in the summer and just sit and write in my journal afterwards because Mm. I use the metaphors from the tree to really kind of inspire my journaling. Yeah,
0: that's lovely. And trees just provide so many ready-made metaphors for so many you know there's a metaphor for, for all seasons in trees
3: isn't there you there's know you've got, metaphor you've got... for all seasons in trees <laughs> we, can, we can map our life through the seasons of trees through the seasons in nature so nature mm. and trees obviously are all one they all if they inhabit the same environment because if we're mm. looking at the seasons we're also looking at trees through the seasons. And I think it's really important because I think often in our lives, particularly when we think about just the digital overload, we can become really disconnected from where we are seasonally in our lives, you know, which is why I think your book is so profound because you speak. So you name so clearly the season of wintering and what happens to so many people, we don't want to talk about the wintering of our lives. No. You you know, when I think about all of the examples and all of the people that you spoke about in your lives, in your book, you spoke about those places that people had to go to where they had to face some of the hard. Knocks of life, they had to f- face some of the difficult, turbulent things. You know, I have this image of you running in the sea that morning with the woman that, you <laughs> yeah. know, get in the sea and just kind of dunking in there for a few seconds and running back out again. But actually, what the wintering did, what you did with facing that harsh, cold reality of the sea, mm-hmm. was that you got stronger, you got more resilient in, yeah, the, yeah. in the sea water.
0: Absolutely. And you know what? I was thinking about just this this morning. I was reading um, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. I don't oh, know yeah. if you've, you've read. That.
3: You're a fan. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, in my twenties, I, <laughs> I read her uh, works because she was phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, and
0: I love the way she's. I think she's beginning to find some new popularity. Gosh, but there's she. that whole idea that God is change. That change itself is the force that you must align yourself with, and that to do that you have to engage with suffering essentially and i thought god that it didn't strike me so much the first time round that i read that but this time round just reading it this morning i thought oh wow that's so 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 true and it's actually what i've been kind of reaching to say in a way as well that that our our job is to align ourselves with it because otherwise we're punished by it you know and i ah oh, she's so sharp she is so <laughs> sharp, isn't it?
3: And I love, uh, there's a couple of things here, um, Catherine, that I'm just thinking about when you're just talking about the parable of the soul, because she was a real, she, I love the way she used her fiction to really tell very poignant life lessons and the way she mm-hmm. read those through her, her narratives. But there's this whole thing around, we. so many people believe that if your life is smooth and secure, and you're not really having upheaval in your life, that somehow you must be a good person.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You've achieved it. Yes, you've mm.
3: achieved it. And I used to really mm. struggle with that as a coach because, you know, when I did my coach training um, and a lot of different coaching sort of programs that I've done. And also when I re- more recently trained as a therapist, I was, a, I was quite, Flummoxed by how many of my peers on, you know, whether it's coach training or therapy training, didn't always want to acknowledge the difficulties either that they've been through or sit with other people's difficulties. It's almost like, yes, yeah. we can train to be a coach. We can train to be a therapist, but, you know, I haven't got any skeletons in my cupboard. I haven't got any stuff that I need to look at. And whereas I was always having, my stuff was always hanging out. <laughs> it was like, right, right on the table. <laughs>
0: it was right on the table. <laughs> but I, I find that really interesting about coaching culture. And obviously there's loads of different kinds of coaches and, and yeah. different, you know, personalities going into that. Yes. But I, I feel like there is a real risk with some coaching culture, and and also kind of writing mentoring cultures as well. I think it comes across in that there is this sense of like the coach themselves trying to project a perfect life in order to make a case for why they can help yeah. the, you know the next person along. And I find that deeply problematic because I don't want to be helped by someone who hasn't had problems. Like I don't feel like they're going to be able to intuit what I'm going through. I want to be helped by someone that's been there already and suffered actually.
3: So here's the thing. <laughs> I found that like yourself, I'm a prolific reader and I imagine that lots mm. of people that listen to this podcast probably love books. And yeah, I, I so. found that when I when I used to look at the books on my shelves, the books that would always engage me, Catherine, were books where people just told me what had gone on in their lives. They didn't nice it up. They didn't sugarcoat it. They told me Mm. about, you know, their mental health, their difficult relationships, their failed marriages, you know, their failures at parenthood. Those were the books where I thought, oh, my God, I love this person because you are giving me a real sense of who you are as a human being. And then I would want to follow that person. I would want to listen to that person. I'd want to find out where they're speaking. I'd want to get them, you know, coming when I was sitting on the board of alternatives at St. James's Church in Piccadilly. I would be recommending them as a speaker to come and speak there Mm. because they felt whole. Do you know what I mean? I, yes. felt I could see yeah. myself reflected back through their lived experience. And actually everything's very connected with this conversation. <laughs> but I was, I was
0: uh, interviewed by someone the other week and they were asking me about the return to work. And I found myself saying a very similar thing to you, which was that like, actually when we all go back, you know, we may go back into offices and things like that. And lots of people need that again. But I really hope that we bring our whole selves back this time, yeah. you know, that we, have really been trained to bring a part of ourselves. And I I think that hits women particularly hard, actually. Yeah. I think we've been trained to bring like the male, the 1950s male part of ourselves into the office, which assumes that everything's running like a machine in the background because there's someone looking after you. And I'm I'm just interested in hearing people's whole self, whatever context it's in. I don't I don't want to keep pretending that I'm something that's actually quite flat, you know, that that hasn't got much depth. It's just success. It's just... You know, being okay.
3: Well, I find a real difference because you know, when I think about back to a lot of coach training, when we're talking about how do you develop trust and rapport, I know that actually what I bring to my work, and I will continue to bring to my work, I I believe until my dying day, is grit and grace. They Mm. are part of what makes me stand out as a coach because you know, you will get my grit. And you will get the grace that sits with the grit. And I noticed that that's how I really make very true, authentic connections with people very, very quickly in my work, which means that people can show up truly as they are. They can tell Mm -hmm. the truth about what they're experiencing. They can talk about what's really, really is going on. And as one of my clients said this afternoon, she actually made me cry. I'm not sure she saw my tears. We were, we were finishing, it was a final session. And, um, I had said to her, let's think about a kind of closing ritual ceremony for us to close the session today and the work that we've done together. So she um, decided she'd write a list of all of the things that she was taken away from the coaching um, and one of the things she said to me was, you know, I just love your creativity. You know, you would have me going out into the garden. You would have me writing about what my body is feeling right now. You would have me speaking out loud a mantra. She said, mm-hmm. I just love the depth and the, the width of your creativity. And then in the middle of all of that, she just went, and Jackie, you shine. You shine, <sighs> just let your light shine even more. <laughs> I mean, she made me cry. Isn't that just lovely? Yeah, I, you know, and I, I was taken aback by it. I hadn't expected that. But I think this is what happens when you really show up. Um, and yeah. I, you yeah. know, and I've had a few people, I can see that some people raise their eyebrows on my Instagram. My clients follow me on my Instagram and they get to know mm. how I'm feeling good bad and the ugly yeah yeah yeah. but I mean those people that raise eyebrows like I I
0: I mean obviously I get that too you know and I just think well that that's telling me something about you rather than something about me you know like if you can't handle hearing me talk about my life as it is rather than some kind of idealized picture of it yeah then like You've got to turn that back to yourself and ask yourself why that makes you so uncomfortable, because it's not making me uncomfortable. So I'm fine with it. (laughs) Really.
3: And in fact, if we think about it, we're always asking people to really think about the things that contribute to them being more comfortable. Um, I do a lot of work. I coach a lot of GPs because I work in the NHS. And you know, one of the things that's a, a reoccurring theme for female and male GPs is how can they be authentic and real in the work that they're doing? Wow,
0: that's a massive question. And yeah. what? How does that? How does that work manifest? You know, what? How can they be
3: authentic? Like, what's the answer? They're asking them <laughs> questions like, "Is my work giving me meaning and purpose?" how do i need to show up with my patients what are the kinds yeah. of things i need to be challenging you know what where what, what am i doing in terms of my own personal inner work that helps me to be more of myself in my work mm. is this the only thing that i want to do or is there something more right i mean it's amazing conversations they're big questions aren't they yeah and
0: actually I, I I must be fascinating work because I imagine for people like GPs, the burden of training is so high yeah. that by the time they get to that actual job, it must be really hard to make any major changes because you've you know, you've put years into this. And if that doesn't work for you somehow, what do you do then?
3: Well, can I just put it another way to maybe think mm. about it? For some people, they arrive at the end of their training. And they decide that actually this isn't for them. They followed right. a path that is has been authorised by what other people's expectations have been of who they should be. And what they mm-hmm. can do. And some, some, some GPs are really brave enough to decide that they want to, you know, explore another avenue. So some go off into research, some go off into teaching, some go off right. and work in other medical settings rather than general practice. You know, they can find different places where they can really share their skills and their knowledge. I had one GP who is, they are so, connected to following their path of becoming a writer and I have no qualms or doubts about them becoming that writer I know they will I know I'm gonna see their book (laughs) I just know it and you know that came out of following a spark and having a conversation with somebody else, i.e. their coach, who was able to hold that space and say, yes, you can do this. Yes, you can be this. Because, you know, I know that I have nurtured that writing self from a little girl of seven years old, my teacher reading Enid Blyton, Famous Five, and I could not wait to finish that story after she finished reading it on Friday, I went to the brand new, fantastic library we had in um, West Norwood, where my family lived for over 40 years. Beautiful, beautiful library. And those librarians took me to a shelf and there were over 30 Enid Blyton books. Well, I nearly fell over with <laughs> excitement. I mean, I was besides myself. When they told me I could take four of those books home, I, I, I couldn't <laughs> believe it was a starting place of my love of books that was the birthplace of me deciding that i wanted to be a writer and actually it's making me well up now just even yeah those those that. kind of clear moments
0: but it's um, you know it's interesting that you pass that on and i i mean libraries are a starting point for so many people they also it seems to be like a really common story that I hear that they're a place of escape for children who are feeling lost in the world yeah i don't know if that's true for you or not but i I do know that they're under threat and I mean the hours of my local library have been cut back really severely and I just I don't think we fully understand what we give to people when we give them a library. It's not just books in fact although that would be an incredible thing in and of itself.
3: I think you're absolutely right so um, West Norwood Library the library that I grew up with as a child was an iconic library because it was designed in such a way it had copper it had slate it was a 1970s beautiful building
2: Mm. Um,
3: it had light it had a naturium in the middle it had reading rooms it had a record room it had private chalets where you could go in and study on your own Um, it had gardens you know we I mean there was I don't think there's a a library in the whole of London that stands out as a a local public library as a West Norwood library did and when I moved out of the area they actually closed that library down because Lambeth Council in their wisdom as they normally do try and sell off a lot of their buildings. Yeah of course. Um, But people campaigned and it was closed for several years. Then the people stole the, the copper off the roof. So then that all fell in. The rain came in on all the books. Anyway, the long and short of it, it was bought by the Ritzy Cinema and thankfully... The library came back,
1: mm. um, so now
3: we've got the library in with the ritzy cinema, which sometimes is a bit jarring because you've got the ritzy cinema, you've got music playing, you've got right. babies and buggies, but there is still that place where you can see teenagers, children, elderly, mm. mothers, people of all ages, races, genders, all yeah, coming together, in space, getting it's like a church. Absolutely. Just a book. I lived in East Dulwich in South London for years, and I was a frequent visitor to East Dulwich Library. Well, I'm telling you, I could write a sitcom on that library from the reference room. (laughs) That is no word of a lie. I always want to be
0: made like a writer in residence of a library, like any library would do. I'm always really happy that they smell
3: right. Absolutely. (laughs) But you could see people literally getting quiet space. If you think about lockdown, you think about what a lot of people have experienced during lockdown. Well, the libraries were the escape places for many people from environments that were not conducive to them having quiet space. The Liberians used to hustle me out at eight o'clock, standing over me as I packed my bags, like, don't you want to go home? No, I've actually had some breathing space here. From all those
0: brothers and sisters.
3: Yeah, but I mean that was that was definitely when I was a child, but that carried on in my adulthood. Right. I would go to libraries to work on designing programs, writing books, all kinds of manners of things. I would take breathing space in my local library because at home, I would find that I'd get very distracted very easily, even though I had a study. Mm. When I was in the library, I went into a different mode. And because the reference rooms were relatively quiet, some people still find it hard to kind of just be quiet. But actually, I would find that the quietness was very conducive to me working really well. So I think libraries are sanctuaries for many people. And just to bring this up today, on my Instagram on Saturday, I went down to protest of my local library in South Norwood, where I now live, because Croydon Council are threatening to close. They're threatening four libraries and they're going to close two. This is what they want to do. And we're all campaigning in the local areas to try and save the libraries. Really fabulous libraries that so many Mm. local people are going to not benefit from if they're not there. Ah,
0: that's devastating.
3: Yeah, it really is.
0: We'll be back with more from Jackie Holder in a moment. But I just wanted to let you know that I'll be releasing some new dates for my writing courses soon, as well as some brand new online workshops for people who want to explore the concept of wintering a little more. If you'd like to be the first to know, go to catherine maycom forward slash newsletters and click the link that's right for you. I promise not to spam you and I'll keep your information safe. And now back to Jackie Holder. So tell me a little bit about um, you during the pandemic, because cut off from libraries, presumably, yeah. as I've been, I've found that really hard too. And I mean, did your work stay the same during the pandemic? Was it very different? What What's it been like for you?
3: I would describe my time during the pandemic as being completely fertile of me continuously working, gaining so much joy from the work that I was able to do. It was like the pandemic was the door that I've been waiting to open so that Mm. I could do my work with a wider audience in a way that made sense. So let's, I'll give you an example. I got commissioned to do a big piece of work with an organisation that works with women who work with women who experience sexual violence. Mm. I got to do self-care coaching sessions, health and wellbeing sessions with all of their teams. I cannot tell you the depths that we went to in that work and how I was Mm. able to feed in Writing with Fabulous Trees, my new deck of inner and outer nature cards, which Mm -hmm. some of the teams told me that this was the best deck of cards that they have come across in working with women because they do a lot of restorative work with women. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I pulled together like um, questions that are inspired by nature to use, to reflect on yourself and to take into your journal, they said that that was the best piece of work that they'd got for themselves and for the women that they'd been working with. So what I found was that I was able to take into my work that it's almost like the best of who I am in terms of my work and what I stand for Mm. as a coach, which is bringing in the self-care, the journaling, the nature, and the restorative practices that are all a combination of coaching, of being an interfaith minister, of being a writer, of being a creative writer, of being a walker, of being Mm. a lover Mm. of nature, everything that's synthesized together.
0: It feels to me like you're kind of primed for a pandemic. It's almost like your, your ideal habitat because you're there like a first aid kit ready to help in loads of different ways.
3: Oh, you might just give me my next project. Yeah. A first aid kit. There was a wonderful poet. Her name was Julia. I, f- I can't remember her surname, but she did a a first aid kit, which included lots of poems for um, sort of nurturing your 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 health, your your well being, your spirit, and your soul. I never forget it because right. she died sh- shortly after she, um, created this first aid kit. But I think we need something like that. Yeah. And so yeah, and, and I guess all of the sort of resources that I create are first aid kits.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Ready to ready to unpack. But do you think that it
0: could ever replace human contact? Because it seems to me that what you give most of all is yourself present in the room with somebody or, or in the Zoom room <laughs> as we've become used to.
3: And are you, are you asking whether we should go back to in person?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'm, uh, you know, we've been talking about toolkits, you know, creating a toolkit, but I, I wonder if a lot of the power of, of all of this lies in actually being able to work with other people and that kind of a push and shove really of ideas that comes when we're,
3: when we're in person. I think we're going to need a combination of both because mm. I, there are so many things that I don't get to do that I would do if I was in the room with people. Yeah. And um, most of all, you know, you can see the full body response of people. You can feel their energies in different ways that we we probably don't feel them in quite the same way on the virtual experience. Mm. And at the same time, what has been incredibly powerful to watch and to be a part of with the virtual world is the recognition that, one you have the ability to connect with larger groups of people who would probably find it all hard to sometimes be in the same room of you as yourself
0: yeah if you're yeah.
3: working or you're living in a different country there is something mm. so powerful about that that you can all be in the same space so i think what we're really getting to harness now is how can we create a more sacred space when we are in person and when we're on yeah. Or Teams or whatever portal. Well,
0: yeah, whatever, yeah, whatever, whatever proprietary brand of... Uh... <laughs> Absolutely, whatever you're using. Um, I had a really interesting experience with that recently, actually. I um, I attended a weekend retreat with the Zen Peacemakers, which is, um, for anyone that hasn't come across them, um, a Zen Buddhist organisation who have a, a kind of mission to bear witness to some of the biggest events of suffering in world history yeah um so they every year they run a retreat at auschwitz where they spend a weekend bearing witness to the suffering there yeah
2: um
0: they run regular retreats on native american land to bear witness to the suffering of you know displaced people's um and I attended one of their bearing witness to slavery or to sorry to the history of race in America retreat. Yeah. So it 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 kind of, you know, is rooted in slavery, but we're talking about all of the different ways that white supremacy has kind of unfolded um over time there. And I was really I was really unsure about it in in for loads of reasons. You know, I I'm not a Buddhist for a start, so I kind of felt like would that be really intrusive of me being yeah. there but also yeah how much connection can you make over zoom and it was it was actually it was extraordinary the the connection and the sacred space that they created and i mean the they they had different people you know presenting to us talking to us about their experiences which made it really immediate and really personal but one of the things they did is they took us into smaller rooms for their way of council sessions which are these yeah sessions where you uh, where people can speak and, and you just listen to them you, you yeah. don't reply you don't you know and that was that was really that became really intimate because you developed a relationship with a yeah. small group of people over the weekend but the grand finale I suppose um, which is the end of all of their retreats is that they run a ritual uh, where essentially they feed the hungry ghost this this buddhist idea of the hungry ghost yeah. which is a uh-huh. an unrested soul um, but they're eternally hungry, and so so we held this ritual to feed them, and it was it was incredibly moving and incredibly beautiful. And I actually wouldn't have been there without Zoom. There's no way I'd have attended this. You know, it couldn't I couldn't have done because it's in America and it's far away, and I'd have kind of seen it as none of my business because it's really my job to bear witness to to the stuff that's happened in the UK. You know, there's plenty of that to bear witness to without bearing witnesses to you know other people's stuff. And sorry, anyway, that's a long and rambling way of saying that actually it really changed my mind about how it's possible to really, really create a a purposeful and prayerful community online. And it it was really beautiful.
3: So I really appreciate you sharing that example because now you've given me an inroad to kind of just widen the lens of what I have been doing on some of those sessions. So if Mm. you can imagine on one session, I put up this huge, vibrant image of a banyan tree. Yeah. And then I invited all of the women to think of two women that they have appreciated in their lives, who has on some way inspired, motivated, or done something that has allowed them to flourish or thrive. That woman could be alive. That woman could be dead. So, you know, it could equally be Octavia Butler because of just her writing to, you know, your friend who lives, you know, a couple of miles away and what we did we we used this sort of tradition from the yoruba tradition from um nigeria of what we call pouring libation now i grew up in a black pentecostal christian Family, um, mm. and we kind of went to church every every Sunday. But I had this very very strong memory of when I was a little girl. Um, I'd gone to a, a wedding. We were always at weddings with mum and dad, <laughs> and you know you went back to the reception hall, and there were all the tables there, and um, just before you eat. Someone would take a bottle of rum or a bottle of vodka. They would unscrew the the top, and they would pour water onto the floor of the hall. Now I remember that as a child. You know, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it meant. Fast forward into you know my late twenties, early thirties, as I began to explore more of my cultural heritage and background, I realized that there was a connection between that custom. And the pouring of water onto the land or onto the earth as a way of um, honouring the land, saying thank you to the land. For some some cultures and communities, it was a way of honouring the ancestors who had gone before them. So they would pour water onto the land and call on the names of those who had gone before them as a way of remembering them and calling on their spirits. Now, that tradition survived. Yeah. People may not have talked about it. And it's, and it's surviving in a different
0: form and it's kind of morphing as well, I think.
3: Absolutely. And we took that mm. onto the Zoom portal and that's how we opened up Some of the work that we did. And women described that as being so soul nurturing, so empowering, you know, to Mm. name those women, to call forth those women. And it really deepened the intimacy, the trust, the safety, the openness. And then we would also go into groups and they would do more, we'd do something what we call thinking peers where one woman would talk about something that was important, significant to her right now, and the other woman would simply listen. She wouldn't give her advice. She wouldn't tell her what to do. She would hold and bear witness to what she had to say when they came Mm. back.
0: And it's actually such a rare experience that just to be listened to, isn't it? It's really, you don't realise what a rare quality it is until someone's listening.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, I think about all of this, you know, when you ask that question about being in person or on in a virtual room, I love this quote from, she's the African-American trekker. She's set up um, a group for African-Americans who go out trekking. Her name is room What a fantastic name for somebody who likes trekking, room <laughs> She says, um, when I'm, when I am in nature, the trees don't know what color I am. The birds don't know what gender I am. The flowers don't know how much money I have in my bank account. The moment mm. I read that quote, I thought, oh my God, Rue, you've just you've just captured it. Because that's, that's what so beautiful. happened for me when I connected with the trees. I needed something external to me where I could see myself reflected back and I could recognise myself as the whole self. That wasn't about the qualifications, wasn't about how much money I had in the bank, wasn't about status, wasn't about power, wasn't about ego, wasn't about my postcode, wasn't about the kind of house I lived in, was about Jackie in her wholeness that knew who she was without all of those things.
0: Yeah. And actually, I mean, I feel a little bit like we sometimes have to fight for that neutrality in nature, you know, that right for everyone to be yeah. there. Maybe neutrality yeah. is the wrong word, like equality, that yeah. leveling. Yeah. Because so much of the way nature's spoken about in this country. Yeah. And I've I've been thinking about this a lot lately, because I think actually like when, when you read nature writing in America. There's this sense that, you know, that only the kind of Native American people can talk about having, you know, that that long-standing rootedness in the lands and everyone else is a newcomer, which I think is quite reasonable. Um, but in this country, class becomes strongly connected to your right to be in nature because you own it a little bit, or you have this what sounds like an ancestral connection, but it's actually like long-standing ownership and exclusion of other people. And that translates as whiteness, too. And it translates yeah. as maleness quite often. Yeah, and I does. think, you know, we really have to work to assert the right of everybody to, to come new to it, like for the first time. And that, that relationship is just as profound and just as necessary and, and that you have every right, whoever you are.
3: Well, absolutely, and let's demystify some of this. So, oh um, yeah, let's think about the Windrush generation. Um, the Windrush was a shipping vessel that sailed from the Caribbean in 1948 and brought some of the first major wave of African Caribbean immigrants into the UK. Mm. Um, And um, so it was from 1948 that you saw a real influx into, uh, who were invited, by the way, to the UK to come and work. And if you think about, if I go back and I think about many of the Windrush generations who came in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s and the 70s, many of them came from places, islands and countries that was deeply seated in nature. Mm-hmm. My mum grew up in a house where when she opened up her back door, it led straight onto the beach and straight into the sea. Oh, wow. yeah. It took me till 1999 when my mum and dad sold the family home in the UK and went back to live in um, Barbados where they were both born and to, to retire. It was when we went on um, holiday to settle mum and dad down that one day we went down to the sea. I thought my mum was just actually going to sit on the beach. My mum mm. paddled into the water and went out into the deep. We all stood on the, we were, <laughs> we were like, what? What was she doing? <laughs> my, my mum could swim. We had no idea that our mum was a strong, brilliant swimmer. She never went in the water in the UK even though it's we too so cold, we, <laughs> she's got a
0: lot of sense. just do
3: it. But do you know what I mean? We had no idea. So there was this sixty-year-old woman swimming yeah. out into the water whilst her children stood on the, the 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 beachfront looking at like with their mouths wide open. And <laughs> That's then, just lovely. It's and that's the truth. And then we'd yeah. go down to the sea every morning with Mum and all of her friends that she went to school with, primary school she'd toddle off she'd swim out they'd all be in the deep waters eating oranges peeling grapefruits and just chatting away whilst me and my sisters belly flopped (laughs) (laughs) and so isn't that just so beautiful a lot of african caribbean people have a deep connection to nature they grew up around it if I talk about houses in the 1970s I can tell you about great big massive cheese plants rubber (laughs) plants spider plants all over the walls do you know what I mean yeah green spaces green spaces they nurtured what they knew but often it wasn't visible to other people and I walk you know everyone who knows me on Instagram knows that you know I used to be a runner now I'm a walker. I walk the Thames path from Battersea I've walked from Battersea as far as Kew Gardens I haven't got to Hampton Court yet I'm going to do that one day and sometimes I can walk along that Thames path and I will only see one person that looks like me and some days I see none yeah and that tells you I mean it's the pandemic has made green spaces more accessible to more people because more people now have taken to nature because it was the one space that we could go into whilst we were in lockdown.
0: Yeah. And let's hope that invitation stays open. Actually, I have to tell you a story back uh, in regards to your story about your mum that it brought to my mind, which I completely forgotten about on a very similar tip because I swim in the sea all the time and I always say that when you swim in the sea you see the world from a different angle and you hear different things and you know this this intimate space opens up and in the middle of last summer I was swimming out you know just a little bit away from the shore and I was all on my own and I suddenly heard these people swimming up behind me and it was a young man who looked to be of like Indian origin with his mum with someone who was clearly his mum and she was you know she was an older woman but she was swimming along and he was coaching her he was like do this you know like keep it don't put your head up too high mom because you'll hurt your neck like dip your head down as you stroke." yeah and she turned around to him like mid, mid-stroke mid and said i do know how to swim you know yeah. <laughs> like, i did this all through my childhood i just don't swim here and i thought oh well yeah. oh, you were telling me the story of your mom i thought well that's yeah. a really similar and i it was just so beautiful because you so rarely see a man and his mother swimming together and, and I got a little hint of their interior life just because they swam past me. It was the
3: most beautiful thing. I loved it. <laughs> it's beautiful just capturing that that image as, as you say yeah. it, actually. So it's really, really lovely. Yeah. And you know, it, I, so lovely. it is. And I, you know, I just think of there's so many quotes that have kind of helped me because that was really powerful me seeing my mum do that. And I remember when we went to my dad's grave in the cemetery one day and I, you know, I had this, I I don't know what I was thinking. I was thinking I could, I could turn over the soil and, you know, just plants and flowers. And I I put this, I don't know, this ax, whatever it was into the soil. Well, it bounced back, nearly hit me in the head, nearly knocked me out. (laughs) And my mum was standing on the side and she literally took this pickaxe from my hand plunged it into the earth, pulled the soil up again, did it again. And before we knew it, the ground was turned up, and we just stood there and was like, oh my God, this woman. <laughs> <laughs> She's just like this super woman. But you know, that's something she did as a child. Yeah. Her body remembers how to do her it. Her body remembered. Mm. And I guess mm. this is for me, what going out into nature does. Why, why I love the trees, because Trees remind me of the resilience. Ernest Hemingway says the world breaks everyone and afterwards many are strong at the broken places.
2: Now that's Mm. been my mantra
3: for years because, you know, we often think that life has sent us something that, you know, has changed the direction we're going in. It's uprooted our lives, you know, for so many people you know, this is you, they're thinking, why did this happen to me? But actually when we, when we get still, when we listen, when we look at the lessons, we look at what has grown in the new place, we realise that we're strong at the broken places. My mum experienced um a mental breakdown when she was pregnant with my um younger sisters. I mean, she's come through so much and, you know, I look at her and I can see that, she, she has grown so much through that. And as yeah. a woman in her late eighties, my mum is, she's hilarious. You know, she's a woman I mean, who's got yeah. her own voice and her own skin. And I think that's what so many of us are seeking.
0: There is so much to
3: be said about humour
0: within all of this and, uh, you know, how often we ignore how funny people are the the people who suffered the most are often yeah. the funniest people and they often have immense humor listen that is a perfect place to stop But I'm going to ruin the perfect rhythm of this by asking you one final question <laughs> which is only because I have a note to ask you something that you intimated to me in an email which is about the story of an elder tree and the way that you're connected to it through your name and I I, I can't let you go without you telling me that
3: so when I was in my mid thirties, I think it was around, I decided that I wanted to change my name so that I would take on a name, uh, the name of my, uh, an ancestral name, an African name, a name that I felt mm-hmm. would have more meaning to right. the woman that I had become. Um, That was also kind of spearheaded by the fact that I'm a, a 1960s born and Everywhere in the 1960s is a Jacqueline or a Jackie. Right. So the name Jackie was very, very common, and I wanted to have something that wasn't. I didn't. I didn't want to have a common name anymore. Yeah. Um. Years before, I changed the spelling of my name from J A C K I E. I'm 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 actually a Jacqueline, but I changed it from J A C K I E Jackie to J A C K double E after an African American Mm -hmm. actress. And that was quite good because people would often say, you know, it's an unusual spelling of the name Jackie, but I was still not feeling like I had fully embodied my name and I had gone on some training. Um, It was a spiritual one year course. And I had mentioned this to the person who was leading the program and they said, Oh yeah, you should definitely get rid of the name holder because that really symbolizes you holding on to things. And I don't know why, but I, had a bit of a gut reaction to that. I didn't mm. take that kindly to the way she said it. And I don't know, it's almost like I thought, no, I don't want to get named the rid of the name holder. And I didn't know why, but I just noticed I had this response. Mm -hmm. Anyway, fast forward a couple of years, I had agreed to meet a friend out for um, lunch one day and we'd gone to this little park in Brixton in South London and I had headed under and I sat under this very, it was kind of a quite a a short tree and I thought if I sit under that tree, that's really going to shelter me from the hot hot Mm -hmm. sun and it was a really, really hot day. So we sat under this tree, we had a great lunch. Chatting away. And when I got up, there was a sign next to the tree. And on it, it said, This tree is called an elder tree. And in the Middle Ages, it was rumored that w- women persecuted would turn themselves into elder trees. No, it said witches persecuted right, would yeah. turn themselves into elder trees. Well, of course, you know. <laughs> You know, right. <laughs> I just had—I don't know why. Again, I don't know why. I just had to write it down. And I did. I wrote it down on a little index card and it sat on my desk for mums. And then I was writing my first book, um, Soul Purpose. And I used to go to the same library that I mentioned earlier, East Dulwich Library. And, um, around the same time I got really interested in trees as well. And I started noticing more, but on this particular day, I'd gone to the library and the seat that I normally sit in was taken. I was a bit put off. I was like, oh, that's my seat. That's where I normally write. So I had to look around. Find another <laughs> seat. So I did find another seat, settled in, got on with my writing. I decided I would take a break. And so I leant back and I turned behind me and it was in the reference library and there was this big, thick book sitting on the shelf. And it said, this is a book of names. Well, it actually said surnames. I thought it said names. So I thought I'm going to look up the word Jackie. When I opened the book, I realised it was a book of surnames. So um, I thought, oh, let me look up the name holder and let me just see what they, you know the name holder means. So I turned to the pages and there was Holder. And this is what I read. The name Holder is given to people who lived close to elder trees.
0: Wow. (laughs) That's just
3: lovely. And it's a beautifully witchy connection as well, which makes it even better. (laughs) It does. It does. And that was that that's the story of how I became connected to the elder tree.
0: And how you chose to keep your name as well, which is Absolutely. just such a perfect,
3: perfect thing to do. Yeah,
0: so it's, it's been so lovely to talk to you. I feel like we've covered... Like all the good things in life, you know, like libraries and trees and swimming mothers. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> swimming mothers.
3: Yeah. It's great. It's been so lovely to talk to you. It's been like sitting around a campfire having, you know, one of those conversations that's just so heartwarming. Oh, I could do with more of them at the moment. It's really. <laughs>
0: absolutely. No, it's been lovely. And I, I feel like I've learned such a lot in this short time. So thank you. Very lovely. And that's all from us today. Thank you so much to Jackie Holder for ending our series on a brilliant note. Writing with Fabulous Trees is available in all good bookstores or directly from JackieHolder.com. And you can follow Jackie on Instagram or Twitter. Links are in the show notes. And that's all from the Wintering Sessions for now. Thank you so much for listening and for all your lovely comments. And of course, to my brilliant guests. But most of all, to the producer, Buddy Peace, who also composed the theme music, and to Megan Hutchins for making sure that everything hangs together. I hope to see you for a new season soon, but bye for now. The Wintering Sessions is produced by Buddy Peace. You can buy Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times, in all good bookshops.